Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Coming up after the impact of Ronaldo, David Ornstein tells us Paul Pogba could now sign a new contract at Manchester United. Uh, the Champions League returns uh, this week. I'm joined by the Athletics' Oli Kay. He'll tell us why he believes, despite its imbalance excesses, the tournament is fantastic and there is lots to get excited about this season. Our Wolves writer, Tim Spears, joins us to assess the start of manager Bruno Large and also to tell us about his interview with the club's owner Jeff Shee and the Athletics German football writer Raphael Honigstein joins us to talk about an exciting start to the Bundesliga. Well, let's start the pod with the exclusive Paul Pogba line in David Ornstein's weekly column uh, on The Athletic. So from what you understand... David, he's leaning towards signing a new contract at United, which I'm guessing is based purely on the fact that he loved park life so much uh, in the city this weekend and was dancing on stage and just wants more of that. I was about to say, don't we all? But you and I don't go to things like that anymore. So <laughs> no, I may have done. I may have done New Order on Friday night. That's more my era. But now we're talking. Even then, I just thought I'm, I'm still. I'm too. I'm too old. Anyhow. So, I mean, this is really interesting and maybe it's quite uh, helpful for our listeners to explain a bit of the journalistic chronology as well, because I was looking into some potential stories around United coming into the weekend and while preparing the Monday column. And it was actually looking like this might go the way of him leaving as a free agent and United starting to come to terms with that because there's been no significant progress over talks on a new deal and the idea that he makes one more big lucrative move to a PSG or Real Madrid has been gathering quite a lot of momentum inside the industry and on the periphery as well. Um, it hasn't worked out quite uh, like everybody expected it to when he came back to United. But then Saturday's match came and you make more phone calls and speak to more people involved and this sense, surprisingly to me, but perhaps not to you, was conveyed that actually he's 
extremely happy with the current situation, the impact of Ronaldo's return, the recruitment work that United have done aside from that this summer, Varane and Sancho. They're planning for more next summer. I think they already have their positions targeted, whether their names are, the names are in place, I don't know. They're currently top of the league early days. Saturday left him and a number of other United players stunned in a, in a pleasant way. I, I, I think it really touched them. It had a profound effect on them. And, and I'm being told now that something as relatively small as Saturday is actually having a significant bearing on his thinking in relation to his future. This is far from being closed or almost closed, which I thought it might have been coming into the weekend. It's very much open to the extent that it may be going towards him signing a new contract. And it's certainly in a much better place than it's been at any time in the recent past. He's out of contract next summer. If and when talks resume, and we do expect them to resume, I get the feeling, as we've reported in the Monday column, that he could well extend his United stay. I mean, you could have you could have plenty of arguments that over the years, the club have let Pogba down as much as more than, than than Pogba has let United down. And people go, well, hang on, mate, he's paid all this money, how have they let him down? But if they don't surround him with players that can help the club win trophies, which is what he joined United for, then you could argue, well, he he would think, well, I, I can't do it all on my own. So his his mood is, and you mentioned the other sign, it's not just Ronaldo. Maybe he, his mood is based on the fact that he looks around that dressing room and thinks, okay, it's not all on him now. Yeah, I'll be the first to point out it was only Newcastle. It was early in the season. It was at Old Trafford with a full crowd and the momentum of Cristiano Ronaldo. Saturday was only going to go one way, a United victory and an unbelievable atmosphere. However, we can't ignore the fact that he's playing unbelievably good football at the moment. And that's been a gradual incline in in recent months, really since he came back from that long layoff uh, through injury. You know, the assists are mind-blowing. Seven in four games, which is a record. The number of assists he's made in 2021 so far is unmatched. The smile, the camaraderie, uh, the way if you read the analytics pieces, it's not just that he's adding the cherry on the cake or a flourish. That guy is running United's midfield now. Uh, We've seen him do the same for France over the years, notably at the World Cup. And people were saying, why can't that translate to his form for Manchester United. Well, it is now. And I guess we've then got to come and and, and move the conversation on to what offers are going to come from elsewhere. Are they going to be better than Manchester United? Well, that's where the sceptics will come in. Then, then the naysayers will go, well, of course, he'll, of course he'll be leaning towards signing a new contract because nobody else is interested. Well, he's 28 years old, despite all of these links with Paris Saint-Germain and Real Madrid. They seem to have their priorities lined up elsewhere. You know, there's talk of Mbappe, Haaland, Real Madrid, PSG have already stocked their team pretty well. So yeah, it is valid to say, is he only leaning or in part leaning in this direction because the options just aren't there? Will those clubs be throwing the level of money at him and his agent, Mino Raiola, that they perhaps expected, certainly pre-pandemic and, and even maybe during the pandemic. We we don't know the answer to that. I was listening to the radio earlier and one of the ex-players was saying that Saturday just struck him and reminded him how enormous United are. And I'm not a United fan, so I don't need to say this. I'm not, no apologist for them. But my 
God, that atmosphere, everything around it. And look, I'm not taking away from the very serious issues. You saw the plane that flew above Old Trafford before relating to the sexual assault allegations that Ronaldo has faced, denied, and US prosecutors um, have said that there is no case for him to answer. But it was to those who were there, like a religious festival, like it, it, the, the the level of adoration. His name was on the back of everybody's shirts, young and old. They were all jumping around the stadium, doing recreating his celebration. They arrived from hours before until hours after. Uh, you and I live in the area. There's a pub opposite my house. I wasn't at the game. The noise emanating from there, the buzz around town. I mean, th- this is a guy who people in, in my town, which is very close to where he's living, are are, are spotting him in takeaways, uh, picking food up. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sure he, he he wouldn't eat sort of the takeaways that you and I eat. But 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 the buzz around this whole city, around Manchester United, the noise, the the magnitude of everything that occurred on Saturday, just sort of said, well, is Pogba at the best place already? And is he now coming to terms with that? And does he want to be part of this revolution rather than? Um, constantly pining for a Real Madrid or PSG. They could, of course, still happen. We don't know how these talks are going to go if and when they resume. Um, He could sign as a free agent uh, in in the summer of 2022. Uh, He can talk to clubs freely overseas from January. So I don't want to be presumptuous, but I do have the ability to relay the current direction of travel. So the Athletics Oli Kay is with us. A big Champions League article up on the Athletic this week. I find myself in this situation every year, Oli, right? Or certainly in the last two or three years when the pots have been a bit different for the draw and a few more national champions go in pot one rather than established clubs. So I look at it and I look at the draw and I think, God, I'm really excited by this. I'm even excited by the group stage and they look some fascinating groups. And then by about match day five, I realise it's still the <laughs> it's still the top two seeds in every group that will go through. I think that's fair to say. I mean, I, th- I think you could probably look at most of the groups now and 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 predict which which two teams will go through. You know, realistically, that that is the Champions League that the that the big clubs have created. That's the that's the landscape that has been made to their design, and it's still not elitist, elitist enough for their liking. So they want they want more guaranteed games against each other. The appeal of this season is that you know because several of the bigger clubs didn't win the the, the National League, Juventus, PSG, etc. It's created this um, situation where they are in pots lower down and uh, you know Liverpool Manchester United aren't in the top pot either so we've got we've got intriguing groups really in terms of at least the matchups we could probably say with a, some degree of certainty who would go with through most of the groups but then I look at group A Manchester City PSG Leipzig Bruges that's a fascinating group I think group B Atletico Madrid Liverpool Porto Milan not easy for Liverpool at all that Barcelona by Munich Benfica Dynamo Kiev all together Manchester United with with Villarreal, Atalanta and Young Boys. And so it's almost because some of these teams, you know, t- teams like PSG, it's because they they screwed up last season domestically and because Juventus finally didn't win the, the, the Italian league that, that they are having tougher groups in the group stage. It means at least we've got some sort of eye-catching group game. Well, it's Liverpool-Milan, isn't it? It's Liverpool-Milan this week. And Milan are the fourth seeds 
in that group? Barcelona Bayern on Tuesday, Liverpool Milan Wednesday, and Inter Milan Real Madrid. Second round of fixtures, you've got PSG v Man City, Juventus v Chelsea. I mean, this is this is the stuff Florentino Perez and his and his mates were dreaming of. You know, guaranteed matches against the big teams with 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 very little jeopardy in most cases. That's that's exactly what they, what they want. The Champions League, I think, the format is is great. The, what isn't great about it is the, the the way the money has been and the places have been carved out over the years, and it's just created this sort of group of teams which are unbeatable, but uh, or largely be, unbeatable for, for for the smaller teams. But it, it, it's yeah, I, I would say the format itself is great, and much more than any of the domestic leagues. I, I think it, it's hard to pick a winner only because. As you've sort of alluded to, most of Europe's big clubs are on a downward scale, are on a downward trajectory at the moment for a variety of reasons. Paris Saint-Germain maybe not because they signed Messi in in, in the summer and might feel that you know last last year, as far as the league was concerned, was a blip. You look round Europe, and all four English clubs would fancy going quite deep wouldn't they, given how they have... I realise Liverpool haven't really spent that much money, but given how the other three in particular have strengthened this summer. If you look back, what would it be, three, four, five years, you'd have said the semi-finalists will be three from Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, Bayern, and maybe one other. It felt like those teams were really dominant and the the Premier League teams weren't perhaps as strong um, at that point. You know, the... We sometimes getting teams to the semi-finals, sometimes getting the odd team to a final, but it didn't feel like our teams were. It didn't feel like the Premier League was as strong relative to the other leagues, particularly the Liga, as as it feels now. There could really be a yeah a, a real possibility and real opportunity for for those Premier League teams. But you would also bet your bottom dollar that Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Juventus would end up in the knockout stage, and and providing they all avoid each other, the they should still go deep in the competition. I mean, I, I know we, I know everybody will say Barcelona are in crisis, they're in complete meltdown. But I, I'll be staggered if. I mean, these things are relative when you're a big club in the Super Club era, aren't they? You don't, you don't fall far when you're Barcelona. You don't fall far when you're Manchester United. Arsenal seem to be having a damn good go at falling as far as they can. But you know that they're, they're not going to fall off the off the cliff, are they? Although it will be interesting how how maybe. Uh, those those clubs that you've just mentioned there maybe slightly weaker in, in the Champions League how that affects their domestic leagues actually it already has I mean Juventus not winning the league in 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 Italy and, and sort of scraping the Champions League place they're in an interesting situation obviously back under Allegri this season and it's and Ronaldo's gone and it's it feels like a a bit of a reboot there Bayern are obviously you know their dominance domestically continues. They're under new management with Nagelsmann coming in. And it's, it's, I, I feel like it's European football is it, is it in a fascinating phase? And it's, it's largely because those clubs that, that have been dominant for so long have been so sort of hell bent on world domination that they've almost sort of forgot to look after, you know, keep their own house in order. And, and, you know, Real Madrid have, again, these things are relative, but Real Madrid seem to have let, a really dominant position in European football slip. Um, Juventus don't look like the powerhouse they were. Barcelona, we all know about you know their their problems. So I think I think that as much as the you know people will talk about the wealth of Man City and and Chelsea and PSG, but there have also been a lot of self inflicted problems amongst those big establishment clubs. And and 
Manchester United as well. You know, Manchester United have, have been run poorly over the last decade. Maybe they're on the up now and we expect them to have a good go in the Champions League for the first time since, what would it be, since since really reaching the final in 2011. They've not been a force in the Champions League at all. It'd be interesting to see how the Champions League actually affects them Premier League-wise, these, these four clubs, because they're already mm. looking like the dominant four, really. And again, I'd maybe take Liverpool slightly out of this because they haven't been as busy in the summer. But I don't think the other three can start complaining about having to balance a European schedule with a domestic schedule, given the size. I mean, you just look at the benches of those three teams in particular. <laughs> I mean, it's really, they could put out two 11s. Yeah, they could. And you're probably right to, to take Liverpool out of that because because they're, you know, front three and goalkeeper in particular, you know, they, they would have, and fullbacks probably as well, you know, they would have a big drop off in that those positions compared to the other teams. They don't have the strength in depth across the whole squad that, that, that Manchester United, Chelsea, Man City have, but they do have enormous qualities as we saw at Leeds, um, at Leeds on Sunday. I mean, that was a, that was a, one of the best performances I've seen so far in the early weeks of the season. It was very, very impressive. Manchester United's performance against Leeds was outstanding as well. Maybe Leeds have got that knack of being hard to play against, but when you do it well, you make them look very easy to play against. Those top four, the big four, as we're probably calling them again now, which is, you know, they they look ominously strong and they look capable of balancing Champions League and, and Premier League in a way that Probably most of them haven't done. Ollie, thank you. Ollie's uh, Champions League column on The Athletic uh, right now. You can read it. Uh, talk to you soon. Okay, speak soon. Good stuff. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's move on to Wolves next uh, on the pod. The Athletics, uh, Tim Spears is with us, covers the club uh, for The Athletic. Um, Where are Wolves at under Bruno Large, would you say? Bearing in mind, you were at Vicarage Road on Saturday when they got their first Premier League win of the season. Yeah, good question. Well, they've made a really good start, actually, which people wouldn't have noticed at all because they were in the relegation zone with no points before the trip to Watford. But they had a really tough start to the season in terms of fixtures. They had Leicester, Spurs, Man United... And I think with a new manager coming in, people weren't expecting much from those games. But actually, supporters and and the players and everyone came away really enthused from what they'd seen in those first three games. They actually outplayed all all three sides for long spells, actually. They had more shots than all of them. And the stats so far, I mean, in terms of XG, Wolves are third in the table. In terms of XG against, they're fourth in the table. And in terms of shots, they're third as well. So it was it was a statistical anomaly that they hadn't scored. That's what I was going to say to you, Tim, actually. After after the Manchester United defeat, I think we'd had them twice on match of the day two in the first three weeks of the season after the Manchester United defeat. All the stars, all their attacking stars, had them in the top five, I think, in virtually every analytic that you could come up with. 
bar, bar the one, bar the fact of actually putting the ball in the back of the net. When they finally scored, and I was tallying up the shots, every single shot that went in, I was marking them off, ready for the, for the big tweet when they finally <laughs> score. Um, and it, I actually laughed out loud when it was an own goal that actually broke the deadlock final. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. And then the, the second goal a few minutes later was a one-yard tap-in. Um, it's just, it's, it's classic football, really. You know, all the great football they've produced and that's the way it finally happened. And he had about three goes at he that. Did, yeah. for the one. Did. I mean, the, the own goal didn't have a Wolves player within two yards of the Warford defender and, the, and he had three goes at the tap-in for the second Well, I, I saw some analysis of the own goal and they were saying, no, the, the cross has come in and the defender's, defender's got to touch it because there's a player behind waiting to score. I'm like, okay, you haven't watched much of Wolves this season because they probably wouldn't have scored anyway. Um <laughs> So yeah, I mean XG's is a guide, isn't it? And and I guess there are concerns they could be this season's Brighton, but I doubt it because the squad's too good. And what's been really noticeable so far, Mark, is how is how the Wolves fans have really embraced the football that they're watching. You know, three defeats to start, but the support has has been. You know, they've completely outsung their opponents in every game. It's really noticeable, you know, how much they're really getting behind uh, Bruno Large. And I think for all of Nuno's, you know, success after such a, after a horrible season last season, you know, that the players, the fans, the ownership, most importantly, was sort of ready, really ready to embrace this, this attacking style of football, um, which is kind of, allow the squad off, off the handbrake really and, and they're really enjoying their football so far it's, it's good to watch When we spoke in the summer there, there was a sort of feeling as well that you know a few people had left hadn't they and, and nobody was quite sure of maybe the direction that the club were going in this next stage of its Premier League life have things calmed down since maybe the last time we spoke and how much is Bruno Large down to, to, to settling everything or have other things taken place within the club's infrastructure just to settle things? There are a few things that they've done in terms of um, staff appointments. So, you know, Nuno's backroom team brought so much to the table in terms of expertise and, and Wolves' injury record was was phenomenal, people may remember, which, was, you know, was down to the the techniques they brought in. So so they have addressed that in terms of some, some backroom staff appointments that are club-based rather than just relying on a head coach bringing in and staff who may leave a few months later. We were all expecting and Wolves were expecting, you know, departures this summer. And Ruben Neves, I think if Arsenal had, if maybe Xhaka had moved on and Arsenal had pinpointed Neves as the one to replace him, which was the information that we had, then he would have gone. And and Traore, you know, we know there were suggestions that he may have left at the end of the window. So, but those things didn't happen. From what I'm told, Bruno Large's appointment has had a lot to do with that. You know, that there was they were very unsettled at the, at the end of last season, these players. I mean, it was a very underwhelming appointment. More the kind of manner of it, really, that mm. uh, it, we, I was hoping personally for, for a proper interview process with, lots, with you know, whittling down to the best man. And of course, it, it, it was it was Mendes's best man who came in, George Mendes's best man. It was his. It was a bit depressing in that way, in that in that there was no proper process in terms of of bringing Bruno Large in. He was just the man that had been identified. But he has made some very positive changes. I, I've got no idea because obviously I'm I'm completely in the middle of it. I've got no idea what people if he, people even know who this guy is yet. And unless Wolves do something special, I'm not sure he will kind of seep into the subconsciousness of of the wider football nation. I think you'll have. Does that suit Wolves? Potentially, yeah, potentially. Um, they won't mind going under the radar a bit this season, but I can certainly see people still asking who the Wolves boss is in a few months' time, potentially, you know, unless Wolves do something really, really special, because he's a very normal guy. Um, I can't detect much of an ego in him, which is very refreshing for a football manager. And uh, and he's and he's very he's very different in Nuno to a lot of ways. 
um, which I think is is partly behind um, some of the positivity maybe that, that Wolves have had so far this season. You talked about players, other players who could have gone. You did an interview with the, with the Wolves chairman, which is on The Athletic now. You, you can read it there. And his, his quote on selling players, we don't sell only for money. We will sell players we feel have reached a peak or reached their ceiling at Wolves. They've done that very well. They've tied everybody down to five years. That's sort of the that's sort of the contract length that, that they give players when they come in. And if if you think that you know Wolves are, are going into their, their fourth Premier League season now, they've still got Ruben Neves, which I wouldn't have predicted at all a few years ago. They've still got Adama Traore. They've still got Raul Jimenez, who uh, you know I know is still coming back from his injury, but he could have gone beforehand. Pedro Neto as well. The only one they've sold is is Diogo Jota. Um, he's their only sort of big sale so far, and people will people will forget he was down to fourth choice when they sold him at the time. He dropped down the pecking order. So when they were in a Europa League quarterfinal, he was second sub that day behind Pedence, Neto, and Traore. So they're very good at that. They're very they're financially sound. They don't need to sell for money. But there has been a, a realignment of of ambitions as far as Wolves are concerned. You know, coming come from the top. When they first came in, there was talk of getting to the top in 10 years, challenging Man City and, and all this, which has obviously got the fans very excited. But the money that they had to, to invest to get Wolves to seventh two years in a row, and then they hit a ceiling, I think they realised that to do that again, they'll take the same amount of money again and do it all over again. So they're trying to do things organically now. There's been a real change in the last couple of years. Um, they want the club to be self-sustainable. Whether that's possible or not, you know, we'll we'll see. It'll be a very long term project, um, and that involves massively increasing, you know, revenue streams from elsewhere. Um, Molyneux is not very big. It'll take a lot of money to, to to invest and expand on that. Ticket prices are up. They're venturing into fashion uh, and esports in in particular is 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 is, a, is potentially very lucrative. But that's that's a massive thing for the club at the moment. They're really expanding into esports, and and they think that that can help increased revenue streams which can be put back into the club so it's become a much more longer term project now than just racing to the top did he feel as well about reaching a ceiling or or getting to as far as they could go did he feel similarly with Nuno on that I think so and I remember writing that at the time when Wolves finished seventh and reached the Europa League quarterfinal that the counter-attacking style he wanted, which was very, very much defence first and safety first, would have a ceiling if they're really serious about cracking the top six. And I think they think that Bruno Large's style, which is great to watch, has got a higher ceiling. I mean, yeah, I obviously asked um, Jeff Shee about Nuno. It's the first time he's sort of spoken publicly since since Nuno left. He threw a Chinese proverb at me, which I wasn't expecting. He said, there are, there are, there are no never-ending banquets in the world um, so this particular banquet had to had to end, um, and yeah, I mean, with Nuno, I, th- I think the spark, I think the spark had gone. Uh, they'd had a really tough year, and w- when I first kind of saw saw him at Spurs at the start of the season, I thought he looked like a different man. The weight had been lifted; he looked like he'd lost weight. Um, he'd been at home for five weeks, and you know, Wolves Wolves may have got that Nuno. Um, he needed that that break. He needed to go home. Wolves may have got the revitalized Nuno, but I think. After after a few years in charge, they thought a change needed to be made, and it was the end of a cycle. Is is how that they put it. I mean, Nuno tried to do what Bruno Large is doing now. He tried to make Wolves more attacking and failed, um, which I think was a big part of it as well. There are no never-ending banquets in the world. I'm gonna. I, I, I will use that sometime this week. I like that. I'll I'll credit you for it, Tim. I like it. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike. 
This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Uh, well, let's move on next uh, to the Bundesliga. The Athletics German football writer Rafa Honestein is with us now. Your piece on the Athletic today reflects that it was an exciting weekend, but but not surprisingly, well, maybe surprising, I don't know, the same two teams dominate? That's not a, a surprise in itself, but I think what, what was quite telling and quite striking in the way is that, that we don't get these big games more often. Uh, Bayern played against Leipzig. That was always going to be a very entertaining game. Dortmund and Leverkusen, those two, two teams, whenever they meet over the last few years, have been fireworks, lots of high-scoring games. But the overall quality was, was so high and the amount of entertainment and drama and everything that you want from domestic league football was such that it really left you wanting a lot more. And it got me thinking, why is it that we don't have more of these type of games? And ultimately, it goes back to the structural imbalances that we have in the Bundesliga, where there is Bayern, through no fault of their own, finding themselves at the very top of the food chain. And then there's a big gap, and then there's Dortmund, and there's everyone else. And you could already see that a lot of these big protagonists from, from the weekend will no longer be there next year. You know, Florian Wirtz, who's sort of the new Kai Havertz coming from Leverkusen, had a fantastic game. Big chance he'll move on in the summer, Musa Diaby. French winger had a fantastic game for Leverkusen. There's a lot of talk of him having offers for next season. Erling Haaland to score two goals. It would take a miracle for him to be Dortmund next season. The only team that can consistently keep all their players are Bayern because of the financial power that they have. And if they pick players from other Bundesliga teams or not, it doesn't really change anything. Um, I think from the outside looking in, there's always a perception it's sort of it's it's Bayern's doing that the league is not strong around them, but actually it doesn't really matter because if these guys that I just mentioned don't go to Bayern, they go somewhere else. Bayern stays strong and everybody else has to constantly rebuild and find these new Haaland's and Wirtz's and Harvard's and so on. And I don't know if there's a, any way out of it uh, unless you really want to challenge the whole system and, and restructure the way the Bundesliga is run. At the moment, there doesn't seem to be enough of an appetite for it. But I think for sporting competitiveness, it's worth thinking about. Who would have to drive that change? Where would the appetite have to have to come from? Did, I mean, is it other clubs who would who would start it? Is it higher than that? I think it needs to be a groundswell movement because the clubs themselves, I think, increasingly are seeing this as an issue. I think the clubs are quite open to taking money from outside investors, maybe not sell a majority of shares, but if you can find people who are willing to be minority investors, strategic investors, clubs like Bayern and Dortmund have done that, they find it easier, of course, to attract these type of 
strategic blue chip investors who want to be tied to the brand, whereas a an Augsburg, for example, or Frankfurt is much harder to attract that kind of investment. But even Bayern have said, you know, we will only sell more shares if our members allow us to do so. And until I think sort of a real, as I said, groundswell of opinion uh, emerges from supporters saying we want the league to be run differently, it's very hard to see how change can ever happen because the clubs themselves cannot force that change through against the will of their own members who are controlling the clubs. And right now it still seems to be the much prevailing mood that people would rather not see the kind of competitiveness that we see, for example, in the Premier League, but still feel that strong intrinsic connection with their own club and feel it is their club rather than the club owned by a nation state, uh, you know, an overseas investor, or even the local billionaire. They, they're very reluctant to give that up, even at the for the benefit or supposed benefit of being more competitive. And I don't know if that will ever change. I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself, isn't it? I mean, that is that is the fascinating debate to to have there. Because I mean, we talked about the Champions League earlier with with Ollie K. That you know the pots are a little bit different this year because Paris Saint Germain somehow managed not to win their league because Real Madrid and Barcelona didn't win their league because Juventus didn't win their league, and therefore. Does the debate in Germany ever go as far as looking at, I know it's slightly unusual in in France, for example, but look at other leagues and go, they are getting different winners at the moment. It doesn't really. I mean, people are bemoaning the fact that Bayern are winning. People are sort of pointing fingers at Dortmund saying they should be doing better with this team and, you know, why didn't they push a bit more and why can't Leipzig get their act together a bit more? And I think these are valid points to make. You can look at Dortmund and think, hey, oh, they've dropped too far, far too many points last year. You could look at Leipzig saying... They didn't really have a good transfer window when Timo Werner left. They lacked the goal scorer. You can you can pick holes, if you will, in their title challenge and say, well, if only they'd done things differently, then maybe they could have won. And Bayern, you know, this is the sad thing. Bayern have been have been weak by their own standards in the last uh, three or four years. They had a manager Niko Kovac who didn't work. They had to change halfway through the season. They had a difficult season last year where you could see that the pressing style from Hansi Flick wasn't really working defensively, but still no one was able to to challenge. But the bigger reason for that is is a is a financial imbalance. Um, Bayern make about give or take thirty percent more than their nearest rival Dortmund, and then there's another big gap to everyone else. So if Bayern wants a player from the Bundesliga and he's not at Dortmund, Dortmund have found it now more easy to resist Bayern because of the growth that they've experienced. But if Bayern want any other player from the Bundesliga uh, and that player doesn't have an offer from Spain or, or uh, the Premier League, they can get the player because the player can double or treble his money. And the club might, you know, might be obdurate and say, well, we're not selling to Bayern. You know, we, they are our rivals or whatever. But you cannot stop that kind of financial pressure from finding it's like a sort of a it's like water you know you, you cannot hold that barrier when there's so much water because the players will say well hold on a second you are stopping me from making my next step up and troubling or, or maybe quadrupling my money that's not going to make me happy you can't keep me against my will here you can might do it for one year but then the next year you know that player will go 
So until those clubs find a way to shorten the gap between themselves and Bayern, and that can only really happen artificially through the injection of extra funds that are simply not being generated organically at the moment, I don't know how that dynamic will change. I don't see who the inter of the Bundesliga will be. You might have a one-off sort of Leicester-type situation where Wolfsburg win the league in 2009 and Stuttgart have done it in 2007. But that was at a time when Bayern were much more poorly run, not nearly as efficient with the way that they used their resources. Bayern used to be very lazy in a way, um, just spending the money on the best players emerging from the Bundesliga, trying their hands at uh, picking up players from South America. didn't really work now that their own scouting has become much more professional. It's very, very difficult to to challenge them. Well, has Nagelsmann changed already at Bayern? I don't think he's changed all that much, but I think he's trying to build on on the Hansa Flick revolution, if you will. Um, the team are very direct against Leipzig. They played a lot of counter-attacks because Leipzig were so high. Um, it was their best starting eleven as well. I think he's trying not to come across as somebody who's going to change everything. There was talk of him introducing a back three. I think the team weren't really looking forward to that so much because they are used to back four with very high um, fullbacks. And he hasn't really, I think, changed the overall formula that much. There was no need to be. But what he has done, I think, is brought a bit of peace and quiet because the Hansi Flick, Hassan Salihamidzic rift was really threatening to tear the whole club apart last season. It more or less did, if you will. Uh, now it's a much more settled environment because... He's come in as an outsider almost and doesn't have all that baggage that Flick had. Good stuff, Raf. Safe flight back. Thank you. And that's it then. Thanks very much for listening. To read all the articles that we've discussed today, head to theathletic.com slash football pod and you'll get a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Dan Bardell and Flo Lloyd-Hughes are here tomorrow and then I'm back on Thursday with Matt Slater with the Business of Sport podcast. The Athletic.